Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ollie Gillette. I'm having a rough night, too. I, I came too early. I was like, oh, what time did you get here? Now, here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Franco Michalizzi behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Changing Minds. Three stories that go to very different emotional places. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Jake Sapaniak, who shared a story for us at the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. But before that, we're going to start with someone who is incredibly dear to us here at the show, Cindy Freeman is uh, one of our story producers. She coaches a lot of the people who tell stories when we go out on tour. She is also one of our instructors at the Story Studio. She heads up a lot of our corporate workshops. She's just incredible. Cindy is also one of the co-creators of Hotsy Totsy Burlesque, one of the very best burlesque shows in New York City. Her alter ego is Cherry Pitts. Anyway, Cindy can be found on Twitter at Cindy Freeman One, and she shared this one at the Risk Live show in New York City. Here she is now with a story we call Fire Me.
So it was 2007, about 12 years ago, and I knew that I needed to quit my bar job. I was working at a place called the Raccoon Lodge. Does anybody know it? Yeah, it was an awesome bar. I love this bar, right? Um, I love this bar, but it was time to quit, which was kind of breaking my heart. And, you know, I'm a responsible human being. I pride myself on that. So there's a way that you quit, and that is you find another job. You work there a few days. You figure out, all right, this is going to work. And then you march into your manager's office, and you say, I am no longer comfortable working here. And you do it in that calm tone, and you look at the horrified look on their face, and then you, you float out. And that was the plan. It broke my heart that I needed to quit. Because when I first got this job, I actually thought it was the answer to, well, at least one of my many dreams. And that was some sense of stability in my life. I had moved to New York about six years before to pursue the performing arts, which meant I was doing a lot of food service work. And, uh, and I, I don't know about others who have done food service. I was working in a lot of nightclubs where everybody seemed to be on cocaine and the managers had this sort of tagline at every single restaurant, which was, we need new faces. Arr! And the next day you'd walk in and like half of the staff would be fired and you wouldn't know why. And it's just like you never knew when it was going to be you. And so there was just, I've never gotten fired from as many jobs since moving to New York. So I never sensed that no matter how much money I was making, there was always this sense like it could all be gone tomorrow. So I was always like putting stuff away in savings. And so the performing arts thing that I was trying to do, I never had like the support or like the sense of a base that I could actually focus from. So I wanted a sense of stability. It wasn't that I wasn't performing. Uh, I, in fact, at this time I was 43. Do the math. I'm like 55 now. Uh, I, was doing, <laughs> I was 43 and I had just started doing burlesque. Uh, yeah, welcome to my midlife crisis. It was fabulous. <laughs> it was so empowering. It was so sparkly. It was so amazing. I was enjoying it so much that I lost a relationship over it. Uh, <laughs> the stand-up I was dating was sort of like, oh, so uh, you're, you're over 40 and you're a stripper now? <laughs> it's like, it's not... So anyhow, he left me for what he referred to as, well, she's nothing like you. She's just a... She's like a small-town girl. <laughs> Leading me to think, like, and I'm what, like a big town whore? Like, I don't, I don't find, you know, doing burlesque was so much more invigorating than hanging out with him. So I was fine with that. But I wasn't, like, I couldn't just dedicate my time to it. I was dedicating to, like, putting money in savings. So um, I was a regular at the Raccoon. There was a bartender Tuesdays, Jake, and he was like, man, you got to work at a place like this. Like, you know, we're all family. Nobody ever gets fired here. Nobody ever wants to quit. I mean, that's why you can't work here because no one ever quits. And then one day I walk in and he's like, you won't believe it. Two people are moving. There are not just one job. There are two jobs opening here. You want me to put your name in? And I'm like, oh my God, you're a genius. Yes, of course. And a week later, I had the job at the Raccoon Lodge. Yeah, I was so excited. And so Jake trained me, and then the other girls, and they seemed to like me, and I like them. And I walk into the you know cocktail bar I was in. I am not comfortable working here. And now I work full-time at the Raccoon Lodge. And I was very excited. And I was trained with this girl named Maven. So there was two of us. It was me and was Maven. We were training together. We hung out a lot together because of this. And we were polar opposites. Um, she was 23. I was 43. She was blonde. I was brunette. She told me about her hopes and dreams. You know, She was from uh, Jersey City. Her father was a firefighter. Her dream was to open her own bar right there in Jersey City. And I told her about my dreams. I'm from Boston. I move here, burlesque. You know, she's like, what? You're a stripper? <laughs> 
And I said, no, no, I, I do burlesque. There's a difference. She goes, so, wait, 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 don't strippers make money? You're older, so you're trying to get out of stripping? Is that what's going And I'm like, no, I'm not a... I only just started doing it. I tried to explain, you know, it's artistic, it's striptease without the sleeves, but by now the eyes have rolled over in her head, and she, you know, she's no longer listening, and it doesn't matter. She doesn't need to understand my life. She's a cute kid. She's funny. I had no idea that she and I were at war. I had no idea. Until one day I said to her, hey, I finally got a steady shift. How about you? Is he giving you anything steady? And she was like... No, what do you get? And I said, I'm doing Friday happy hour. It was the best shift in the joint. And she's like, no, no, no. He told me I was doing Friday happy hour. And I show her the text. I'm like, no, this is Frank, Cindy, you're doing Friday happy hour. And she's like, well, he told me I was. And I was like, well, I have the text. You know, I win. So uh, I show up on Friday for my shift. And she shows up on Friday for my shift. Uh, she doesn't come behind the bar, okay, that's good, but she owns the bar, and what I mean by this is she plants herself over by the door, and then as the regulars start coming in, this place got packed, right? As the regulars are coming in, she's like announcing them like the Herald and Cinderella, you know? It's like, it's Sam, he drinks a PBR, and oh, gee, 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 oh, I got Dave gets a Jack Daniels, and uh, then she starts running back and forth behind the bar, she's like, Cindy, with the snapping, there's PBR over here, they're empty. Cindy, 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 Amstel Light over here, and shots on the house for everybody. And then she puts all of her favorite songs in the jukebox, and she's like, dance with me. So she's dancing with the guys, give them shots on the house, and the snapping of the fingers, and this goes on for six fucking hours. Oh, yeah, by the time I was done, I wanted to kill her. I hated her guts. So I saw Frank, the manager, two days later, and I'm like, I'm explaining it all. And I said, and at some point, did you notice the, the price list went missing? I had it in front of the beer tower. I turn around and I turn back. It is gone. Maven's right there. And I'm like, have you seen the price list? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And I was like, she took it. And he's like, this is so weird because she told me that you said that Friday it was too much volume. You couldn't handle it. And you were going to ask me to give her the shift. And I go, and I say to him, you want to know why she said that? She said that because she's a cunt. (laughs) And he goes, what? And I'm like, I'm sorry, because I never say that word. And I'm just really, I'm just so, and he's like, well, no, it's like, you're clearly upset. And I'm like, she's, she's a lying, treacherous bitch. And I said, this is like, this place is like a family. Like we're all supposed to get along and be team, but this is not team playing. And he's like, all right, I I hear you. So my next shift is on Tuesday. That morning, I get a little text saying, I've made a schedule. All this stuff will be cleared up when you get there. I'm like, great. I get there. On the wall is the schedule. I have one shift. Maven has five. And I'm thinking, is it that I use the C word? (laughs) Are they sleeping together? Like, what happened there? And Jake, my friend at this point, comes in to cover after I leave. And he's like, what is that? Nobody here has ever worked five shifts. Only three. Like, are they sleeping together? I'm like, I don't know. So, but now I'm in a frenzy. It's like, um, you know, it's like he's giving me the worst shift of the week, which is like, I'm lucky if I walk with 150 bucks. I can't live on this. So now rent's coming up. I'm paying that out of my savings. paying the credit cards to do my groceries to make sure I've got liquid cash. I'm spending every single moment that I have like trying to find other jobs through Craigslist and it takes me a month to find another job. And in the meantime I'm coming in for my one shift a week and the girls who trained me, who liked me are now like giving me like you know, the face. And it's like, hi! You know, I don't know what Maven is saying. But I think it has something to do with, I don't want to work with a stripper. 
because the regulars are saying, so we hear you're a stripper. And, you know, what clubs do you work at? So you're older. Are you trying to, like, get out of stripping? And I'm just like, no, I'm a burlesque. So anyhow, there I am. I finally have a new job. I am going to be training on Sunday. And then I'm thinking, like, this is my last shift. I need my $150, but this is going to be my last shift. I will, by the time I train, I'll just leave. So I'm, I'm chopping my lemons, and Maven walks in. And I have this pit in my stomach as she sits down. Can I have a Heineken here? Chopping the lemons. She goes, you know what? You're really pretty. I say, thank you. And she goes, I can't believe you're over 40. Thank you. I'm chopping the lemons. Can you do me a favor? Uh Uh-huh. So this is what's going on. I'm like, "What what do you need? She goes, so I have a new boyfriend. He wants to go to Atlantic City this weekend. Can you cover my Friday, Saturday, Sunday? And I don't want to ever come back. I mean, the pit in my stomach that I get just walking down the street towards this place, and I'm like, money. It's like the calculator just going in my head. I said, let me think about this. This is all she needs to start laying it on thick. And she said, you know, I've decided you're really cool. Because when I first met you, I just thought you were this crazy middle-aged stripper. Right? But now that I kind of got to know you, it's like I understand. Like, you're just like, you're an artist. You just do your own. You don't care what other people think. You march to your own drum, and that's to be admired. You know, you're really cool. And this, I don't know what goes on in my head, but it's this thing of like, oh no, you do not get to think I'm cool. (laughs) She wants to think I'm a crazy middle aged stripper. Maybe I should be a crazy middle aged stripper. And then I think, nobody in this bar seems to like me anymore except for the regulars. Maybe they all should think I'm a crazy middle-aged stripper. And I actually know how to do that because I am a burlesque performer. That week, in fact, I'd been on a bar pouring liquor down people's throats and pulling off my clothes. And granted, I'm not supposed to do this at the Raccoon Lodge. I think to myself, you know what? I'm not a burlesque performer. I am indeed a crazy middle-aged stripper. And it is fucking fantastic. So I, I then have to think, how many shots is it going to take me to get up the guts to four? It takes four shots. And I do one, two, three. And then I go out and I own that jukebox. Every single song I do a burlesque act for, come back, four, boom. And the regulars start coming in. And one of my songs come out, you know, it was like hot-blooded, checking it. So I jump on the bar and I yell, it is showtime. And I take off my sweater and I take off my bra, and I take off my pants, and the construction workers are like, ah, cameras are coming out. I jump off the bar, I give a little bow, I get a round of applause, and then they throw money at me, which I wasn't expecting. Who knew? So I take all the money, put it in the little jar, look back at Maven, and she's like, I'm doing a good job. So I do another round of shots and another song and back in the bar and off the bar and close off and close on and I put the money in there and she's like, you can't be doing this. You can't be doing this. And I'm like, sweetheart, I'm behind the bar. I can do whatever the fuck I want. And then I do another shot. At which point my coworkers, the girls, the other girls, they come in, which I have no idea how they got here so quickly because they live all the way in the Bronx. But I know who texted them and they're all like 
in and the three of them like three little witches and another song comes up and I get up there and the guys go crazy and I take off all my clothes and they're all like ah! and I get off and one of the girls says I always knew you were crazy and I said baby you don't know what crazy is at which point I see one of the guys he's texting I'm like what do you got and he shows it to me and it says bartender gone wild raccoon lodge get here now and I'm like yeah shots for you boom now this is it is only 5.30 in the afternoon <laughs> and that place is friggin packed I am burning this I'm gonna get fired so bad and it's gonna be amazing right and so I get off another dad get off you know and stuff like that and suddenly the police show up <laughs> and I say hello officers can I help you and he says well we're answering a 311 call about a naked bartender Right, who here has ever called 311? Have you ever gotten a response? No! <laughs> and I say, well, gee, I was dancing on the bar and I'm wearing a sweater that's beige, I guess from maybe outside. He goes, well, whatever. It looks like you guys are having more fun than we are today. You go at it. I said, you got it. He leaves. He gets back into his cruiser. They drive off. I get a standing ovation from the bar, right? Now, you would think this means it's time for shots and more showtime. But liquor does this weird thing where it flips. And suddenly it flips. And what I'm left with is this outrage that these girls hate me so much they want me fucking arrested. And I just scream out, who called the fucking cops? And they're looking, they're hiding behind the pool table. And I'm like, you called the fucking... And the guys are like, whoa, 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 calm down. And that's when I just burst into tears. Because suddenly it's, I thought that clarity that only nine shots of Jack Daniels can give you. I am 43 years old and this is my fucking life. I have no career. I have no job after today. Who knows if this other job's gonna work? I have this crazy bipolar roommate at home. I've got an ex-boyfriend who left me because he thinks as well that I'm a middle-aged crazy stripper. I have to pull myself together. I somehow get through the rest of that shift. Part of it's blackout. I don't know how I did it. But I do remember leaving. It was a, it was a Tuesday and it was the summer. It was still sunlight when I left that place. <laughs> went home, went to sleep, woke up to my boss calling me. And it's like, and his voice is usually so deep. And he's like, you, what are you thinking? I can't believe you. That's what you can't do it. And, I, and then he told me that I counted the money so poorly I owed him $200. So even with extra money, and I made a lot, it was almost half of it went back to him. And then I had four days of a timeout to wait before starting this new job. And maybe I would have felt better if I had left, you know, on top with more showtime and just like, ugh. Um, but maybe not, because like there was just this sense of who had I become? Because I'm this responsible person. Like that is my mojo. And I don't know who this person was, but it was not me. And even more disturbing than that feeling is a feeling down deep in my spirit, like Darth Vader calling to me saying, When can we do that again? That was so much fun. <laughs> and I'm like, No, I'm like, have a shot. No more time. Have a shot. I didn't drink for six more months. I just took a break starving that voice into submission because I didn't want to burn anything else down. That was 12 years ago. 
I'm still doing burlesque. Totsy Totsy Burlesque, it is my show. I'm still a crazy middle-aged stripper. <laughs> and now I have an amazing job. I work at risk. It's amazing. And I have bosses who don't say, we need no faces. They appreciate the fact that I am a person who will cross all the T's and dot all the I's. And they say nice things to me and give me gratitude. And deep down there's a voice that says, <laughs> oh, God, you guys don't really know what crazy is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This is wrong. It's sin. You're trying to advertise your body as bait. You're trying to use it as a lure. You're trying to use it as a sex kick. Young lady, listen to me. You are a fool. My God, put some clothes on him. Did you ever think that you would come to the time in America to where that women would walk around so undressed that it would defy all description? And I really didn't know what I was doing, they said. I just pulled off my clothes and I had to do it. Inspired by the powers of darkness, you are a fool, girl. You're a fool. Okay, so, when I was in seventh grade, I had what felt like my very first boyfriend. Uh, we met while doing a theater community, a community theater production of Carousel. <laughs> Classic, right? His whole family and he were in the chorus while I was playing Enoch Jr. And our relationship was totally secret, obviously, because I was 12 and it was 1999. And it got hot and heavy around Tech Week and then it ran the course of the show during which, you know, he'd sneak and buy me presents. We'd hide in corners and hold hands and kiss. And uh, when he drove me home, he'd park across from the cemetery on a vacated road and we'd dive into some pretty heavy petting. I should mention now that Bill was around 40. His family in the chorus consisted of his wife and child daughter. I know, 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 I know. I went through it. I know, it sounds like a lot. But honestly, roughly one out of every four girls and one out of every six boys are sexually abused as children. So this should be a little less taboo to talk about than it feels, considering more people have been sexually abused as children than watch Game of Thrones. And that's all anyone can talk about nowadays. You know what I mean? So, whew. Now, I, I, do, I thank God it was never violent all those times, which to me seems much more difficult to work through. But um, though I never reported it or told anyone, years later, I hear he's arrested for a previous crime of the same nature and had a procedure to remove his testicles to lessen his sentence. So, I mean, there's that. You know what I mean? But whatever, time passes. Time passed. And I grow up. And I continue to fool around with men, all with the usual mixed bag of emotions gay men experience sex in those years before you come out. However, it's obviously plagued with a lot of incredulity and guilt. You know, extra guilt. You know, it was always so secret when I fooled around with other dudes. Uh, I was never developing any emotional intimacy with these men, mainly because, looking back, I'd had developed the habit of seducing the down-low dads in the suburbs at Barnes & Noble bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd... I'd obviously become impulsively promiscuous. 
Exhibit A, my screen name on AOL as a kid was Lolita447. <laughs> if my dad hears that, I'm just worried. Um, you know, and though I had never seen the movie or read the book, I had seen the poster and I got the gist that this was a girl who was into guys with her own place. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd become, I'd become a seductive little child at 13 and it was so frighteningly automatic, you know what I mean? I couldn't believe any of my actions were authentic. And when I'd watch like 10 Things I Hate About You or She's All That, I couldn't meld all the locker meat cutes in the school hallways to like the stall hand jobs I was giving to strange men, to hairy-bellied men, you know what I mean? At public bathrooms. So honestly, I was just, I was questioning whether I was even gay or if I was just doing what I'd learned from Bill because of Bill. And since I was still just a kid, and it was all so secret, the gay stuff and the abuse stuff, there was no one I could really turn to for help. But I did have the Lifetime channel. You know what I mean? That that glorious victim Fantasia channel, which was free cable, and, you know, I used as cheap therapy, because kids are resilient. And... Uh, I learned all about, like, repressed memories and reliving your abuse and confronting your abuser. Now, my, you know, material was felt immediate to me. And my favorite Lifetime movie was Broken Silence. One of, I wish someone had seen it. I don't blame anyone. Um, It was one of the Lifetime Moment of Truth movies starring my favorite actor as a kid, Lex from Jurassic Park, as, yeah. (laughs) as a Star Trek runner, and it was all about how her Star Trek coach sexually assaults her, and then her and her mom trick him into admitting it and get him sent to jail. And at the end, you know, with that sick fuck of a perv locked away, she finally starts running again. And I finally saw a version of my story represented right there in front of me and solved in a running time of an hour and 18 minutes. And we had the same hair. You know, and there was no subtext. You know, everything that was boiling in the shadows for me was boiling right there on the surface for everyone in a Lifetime movie, which makes it all so easy to parse out. And I wanted that. I wanted my trauma laid out clearly to be easily dissected and understood by me. You know, I wanted to know what I felt towards Bill that I didn't know I felt. Because whatever it was, it must be driving all my actions. Because when you watched Ariana Richards in Broken Silence, she knew exactly why her grades were slipping and she stopped combing her very pretty hair. So I decided very, on, very early on that Lifetime movies were telling me the truth and that they were the best instruction manual on how to get over trauma and that the years of therapy just wouldn't compare to some cold, hard drama and confrontation. You know what I mean? And and rule one of a Lifetime movie is the best way to unearth it all is with a dramatic scene. But I felt like I'd missed my chance. You know, like I said, time had passed. Bill was gone. I'd missed whatever trial had happened, a classic Lifetime movie setting where people point and cry. But then I see another movie to change my life. Knocked up. Okay, you know this scene? I just want to make sure I get this right because... Okay, you know the scene where the parents go online to look at all the red dots in their neighborhood? And Yeah, right? I mean, it's a great scene. And it clicked that, whoa, Bill would be a red dot. You know, his address would be made public. I could find him. And when I found him, I would be purged by whatever scene happened between us, be it poignant or dramatic. You know, like in Goodwill Hunting, when my favorite actor as a kid, Genie from Aladdin, got that guy to say it wasn't his fault. Only instead of crying, I'd totally fall in love with a woman. (laughs) And I'd know why I was compulsively giving head to men at borders. 
So I like hit the public library like I was Julia Roberts in Pelican Brief or Harriet the Spy with the appropriate sad beige backdrops behind me. And I type in his name and I scrolled and pop, found his red dot. Somewhere in the middle of Illinois. Huh, he moved. And I wrote down his address and I put it in my wallet and I sat on it. I literally sat on that information for almost a year because I don't own a car. And then finally, a spring break when I'm old enough for my parents to stop asking where I'm going during the day. And I borrow my mom's champagne-colored minivan and I drive three hours through cornfields to the middle of nowhere, Illinois, to his red dot. And (laughs) all I'm thinking that whole drive is like, will I punch him or will I forgive him? And I was like, my first instinct will be the right one because, you know, whether it's full of rage or grace, because drama is the herald of truth and release. I know, I think that's the TNT slogan. I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) um, You know, everything will be brought to the surface. So I arrive, and I park under the only tree for a horizon, uh, where the only two houses stood together, them both looking straight out of Crimes of the Heart, starring my favorite actor as a kid, Julie from Tootsie. Um, I walk up to the door ready for the big reveal of my dormant emotions, and I ring the doorbell. Okay, nothing. I open the screen door and I knock. Nothing. Well, fuck. You know, I'm finally ready for the, like, to maybe literally tackle my past and no one's home. So I huff back over to the house next door and I knock on the door and I'm like, I'm like, hi, I'm, you know, an upper middle-aged couple answer. I'm like, hi, I'm looking for Bill. Is Bill home? Will he be home later? And they're like, oh, he's a truck driver and he's gone for long stretches, you know, weeks every month. And I'm like, ooh, truck driver now. So unsatisfied, I, uh, I, I huff back over to his place thinking, I'll, I'll go knock on a side door because maybe he's just napping. And when I get to the side door, I find the door's unlocked. <sighs> And I'm like, okay, I could accept this day as the literal embodiment of the unknown of the past few years, or I could see what emotional fireworks offering the light of clarity lay ahead by breaking and entering. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. So I'm inside his house. You know? And it's a, it's a home. <laughs> it's a yellow kitchen. There's a jar of Jif on the table. The lady had mentioned he had a roommate, a fellow truck driver. No sign of him. Huh, he divorced. You know, I'm watching myself like I watched those Moment of Truth movies, you know, like looking for any big emotion, but I'm still not feeling anything except the expected adrenaline of being a burglar. So I'm like, I go, I walk upstairs. Carpet. Stairs. I think that's important. Um, and of the two bedrooms, I immediately know which is his. Uh, there he is in a gay man's chorus photo. Huh. He'd come out after me and before his sentence. Um, there's a wide bed, a calendar full of puppies, and a shelf full of DVDs. You know, I'm in this man's bedroom seven years after he molested me, and I still feel like this would be edited for TV, you know, no swell of emotion, I have to do something. So I pull a few DVDs whose titles sound threatening and appropriate off the shelf. 
unforgiven, forever young, the usual suspects. And I put them deliberately on his white comforter so as to make clear that this is not his roommate returning in DVD, but a spirit from the past. Okay, I know like unforgiven is like a Western. And Forever Young is like a comedy starring Mel Gibson. I don't think it's very good. And The Usual Suspects is one of the greats, but I was working with I Had People. Not to mention, I'm still feeling void of any big filmic catharsis. But then I clock a photo of Bill holding his daughter, looking exactly as he had in Carousel. You know, it must have been taken that year. What are the odds? And I decide to steal the photo from the frame. You know, that'll definitely give him a feeling of uneasiness when he returns. And I wanted that. I wanted whatever I had done in his house to leave him with a feeling of uneasiness. And I wanted that uneasiness to spark an immediate thought of me. Because if it did, then I would have mattered as much to him as he mattered to me. We'd be equal in importance to each other. You know, I'd have affected his life as much as he had mine. If I popped up in his head first, then it'd be proof, even if I never saw it. So I steal the photo from the frame, and I run down the carpet stairs, through the yellow kitchen, out the unlocked door, and into my champagne-colored minivan, and I drive the three hours home. And I don't think about any of it for a while. You know, I think I'm a little bummed I didn't get my heartbreaking revelatory scene. And... (laughs) I don't feel cured, um, mainly because like some of the little mysteries of who I am still feel unsolved. If anything, I felt very confirmed that this was just going to be something I was going to have to live with for the rest of my life. But I did get two things from that day. One, information. I found out a lot about Bill and what happened to him after it all. And what I found out humanized him for me. For me. I'm not asking for you. <laughs> um, You know, he wasn't some monster pulling the puppet strings of my life. How could he? He was a guy in the middle of Illinois. You know, he was just a guy, and I can deal with a guy. Two, I found by nothing being revealed to me that day, there was nothing to be revealed. No, like, subconscious, unconscious emotions. I could finally believe whatever I was feeling about it all. I could trust how I was feeling. There wasn't some unknowable factor to it all. And as I carried those two things, I found I had at least exercised Bill from the equation. You know, I could finally start dealing with the repercussions of the act itself. There was no villain in my story anymore. And with that, I reach a point where some random Wednesday night, I wake up straight out of sleep peacefully, and a thought of forgiveness passes through me. I felt like I could forgive him, or that I did, and I'm just going to vacillate between can and do for the rest of my life. You know? And I think that might have been my big scene all along. Just a silent internal pivot no one could see, and one where I didn't need Bill. A very uncinematic moment. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is the Black Keys behind me now, and we just heard from Jake Sapaniak. You can find him on Instagram at Jake John Alexander. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And don't forget, you don't have time to be going to the post office anymore. It's kind of a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com, which brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. It's a no-brainer. No wonder 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Our final story on this week's episode is such a treat. This is Ollie Gillette. Now, our friend Jeff Zimmerman, who has told extraordinary stories on Risk before, uh, he teaches storytelling, and he reached out to us and said, hey, a student of mine just told a story in class that I think would be perfect for Risk. So we invited Ollie on to be on the live show here in New York. Ollie was going through a transitional phase at the time, so this was their first time going by the name Ollie. And also their first time sharing a story at a live storytelling show. But it was funny. I was not in on any of the coaching of Ollie uh, before the show. So I was listening backstage and pretty much hearing the story for the first time and realized that the particular party that Ollie goes to in this story, it's a monthly party. It's one I go to all the time. So anyway, here is Ollie Gillette now with a story we call The New Me. Hi, everybody. So this is also the first time I'm using the name Ollie. It's my brand new name. So yeah. thanks. Welcome to my very non-traditional christening ceremony. So glad you could be here. So it's 530 on a Friday. I am on my work computer. I've got like 17 browser tabs open incognito mode. And I'm Googling what to expect at your first sex party. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm thinking about going to my first sex party for the same reason that probably a lot of people go to their first sex party, which is that I recently went through a breakup. And that was actually one of the tensions at the end of the relationship. My ex had wanted us to go together to a sex party. I had wanted us to go together to sleep. (laughs) 
And there are some other complications in there, too. One of them is that I am transgender. So if you're looking at me and you're, like, trying to do the mental calculation, the easy way to say it is I used to be a lesbian, and now I'm trying to figure out whether or not I'm a gay man. And luckily in this beautiful city of New York, there's a party just for people like me who are trying to figure this out. This particular party, it's usually a gay man sex party, but this night it's open to the trans community. So it's like when there's ladies night, except this is like people who formerly identified as ladies night. And so... Yeah, that might sound a little niche, but actually um, there are a lot of things going on in the trans community. We've got support groups. There's like a boxing class. Uh, On this particular night, I'm deciding between going to the sex party and going to the Friday night transgender Bible study group. (laughs) But when I'm reading all the articles on the internet, they say pretty straightforward things. They're like, Wear comfortable clothing, don't overdress, hydrate. Like, I could do all those things. I'm going to go for it. So I go home from work, stop at the store, pick up all the essentials, a six-pack of beer, two big, like, 32-ounce bottles of Gatorade, two Amy's Organic Burritos. And then I go home to my apartment, and I guess I should tell you another reason I'm nervous about this party is that... um, My relationship with my ex wasn't the only relationship I ended last year. I also recently ended a 31-year relationship with my boobs because I had top surgery. Thank you. Thank you. It's a big deal. But I'm also nervous about it because this is the first time I'm going to be going out in public in my new body. I don't feel totally comfortable. I'm like... Am I trans enough? Are people going to like me? I'm really nervous. So I drink a whole beer. I drink a whole bottle of Gatorade. I eat a burrito and a half. I'm still not feeling ready. Then I find myself, I'm in my bed. I'm on my phone. I'm on YouTube. I'm listening to self-confidence meditations by myself. And then I'm like, still not feeling hyped up. So then I decide to do to prepare what anyone with my identity would do in this situation. And when I say my identity, I know that you're looking at me and you're thinking I'm probably a Hufflepuff. (laughs) But I actually have a lot of Ravenclaw in me. And if you don't know what that means, it means I'm a Virgo. And if you don't know what that means, that means you're straight. So I, I do the thing and I set some goals for myself. So I'm like, all right, goal number one, just go inside. <laughs> go inside the party. Goal number two is to try to stay till 1 a.m. It's like 11, so it's a feature-length film, which I think is respectable. <laughs> goal number three is to make out with somebody. That's not even my reach goal. I do have a reach goal that's important when you're setting goals, My reach goal that's aspirational is to take off my shirt if I feel comfortable. So now I got my goals. I'm feeling pumped. I get in the lift. I go to the party. I go downstairs. It smells like mildew. So walking into a sex party, it's like walking into a party where you feel really, really awkward. So it's like walking into a party. 
and I go in, and the first thing I see, it's this forest of, like, hairy backs of these tall gay men, and they're wearing nothing but harnesses, and their dicks are swinging everywhere. And my first thought is, like, fuck, I'm overdressed. (laughs) But I already hit goal number one. I already made it inside, so I keep going, and I immediately, I see somebody I know, and this person actually was in a gender group that I facilitated two years ago when he was a closeted, shy, young lesbian. And now he's like very confident strutting around wearing nothing but a harness. I didn't get the dress code memo. And I'm like, fuck, you know, he lapped me. Like, I'm way behind. And I also, I came out as gay pretty late in life. That's called tardy to the party. And... And so now I'm like finding myself coming out in my 30s as trans. All these things are happening. I feel like, you know, the magician when they have a scarf, like a rainbow scarf in their hands and you're pulling it out and it just keeps coming out and coming out and coming out and coming out and you like don't know when it's going to end. That's how I feel about my life. I just keep coming out. So I'm like, fuck it. I go into the back room, looking around, and I see one person who looks friendly. He smiles at me. He's sitting on this black, like, vinyl bed thing. And so I go and I sit down next to him. He's got his arm out, and it's kind of, like, glistening. It's, like, wet. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to make some small talk. (laughs) All right, we got this. So I'm like, hey, this is your first time here? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Me too. Are you having a good time? He's like, yeah, yeah. I, uh, actually, I just fisted somebody. I'm like, oh, cool. Cool, cool. Is, is that the first time you've done that in public? He's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, cool. Cool. And then I ran out of conversation topics. <laughs> but luckily, the person he'd been fisting came back then and just sits down next to me. And so they start, like, going at it over here. And then this other couple by then has come in, and they're sitting on my other side. And they are also hooking up. And so I'm just sitting in the middle, twiddling my thumbs. I'm, like, not really sure what to do with my eyes. Um... But then shortly after, somebody else comes into the room who's like 19 years old. He's got fresh scars from surgery still. I can see them under his medical tape. And he's wearing a kind of like comically long dildo. <laughs> and he comes up to me and he's, he's talking to the people next to me. He leans over me and his dildo kind of like flops over my... You ever been on the subway and you're like holding on to the pole? <laughs> And somebody else comes and they put their hand on the pole and they kind of like brush up against it. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. He kind of did that. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me move that out of the way. He like flops the dildo off of me. <laughs> but then we have this moment of eye contact and he's like, hey, actually, uh, would you want to make out? And I was like, huh, I'm thinking in my head about my goals. <laughs> Seems like a great opportunity. So I'm like, hang on one second. I take off my shirt. Literally take off my shirt. 
I start making out with this kid. I'm not supposed to say kid. This 19-year-old. <laughs> I start making out with him. At first, I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this. But then I get into it, and it's fun. And so we're just making out. I'm like in the zone. I've zoomed in on him. That thing where the rest of the background kind of blurs out, and you're just focused on this one person. And I was like, thinking to myself, this is what it's about, right? Like all of the hype, all of the black lights, all this stuff we do, all these safe spaces we try to construct, it's for this moment right here of human connection. And I'm here and I'm connecting with this person. I'm feeling accepted by my community. I feel wanted. And, you know, I'm making out with a 19-year-old and he's got a 12-inch dick and I'm okay with that. I feel great about that, actually. And I'm feeling this sense of connection. And all of a sudden, I feel the bubble burst. And I feel like somebody's staring at me. And I look at the entrance of the room. And watching me, just walking in, is my ex. And she's with somebody. Looks like a carbon copy of the person she dated before me. My heart drops. And the first thing I feel is overwhelming guilt. I'm like, oh my god. I need to leave, I need to leave, I need to leave. I'm so guilty. I haven't seen her since the breakup. This is the first time I'm seeing her. I jump up, I run over there, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. How much did you see? I saw. I'm, I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna leave. She's like, no, you don't have to leave. And I'm like, Jesus, I can't believe you're here. It's like so soon after the breakup. And I'm like, I can't believe you're here. You're on a date. It's not a date. It looks like a date. It's not a date. She's like, well, you don't have to leave, but if you don't want to see anything else, you should probably leave this room. And I was like, whoa, I'm going to leave. So I storm off into the front room. I'm like huffing to myself. I'm like, she told me I have to... I belong here. I belong here. This is my party. This is my space. And I'm kind of fuming, feeling my feelings, and I sit down on this bench by myself in the front room, this curtained-off area. And then suddenly somebody pops his head through the curtain... It's this very handsome gay man. And he says, rough night, huh? (laughs) I'm Steve. Can I come in? (laughs) Sure, Steve. Steve comes in, sits down next to me. I'm like, yeah, listen, I just ran into my ex. He's like, oh, man, which one's your ex? She's wearing a purple lacy thing. Don't worry about it, Steve. How's your night? He's like, I'm having a rough night, too. I I came too early. I was like, oh, (laughs) what time did you get here? He was like, no, 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 I came too early. Like, I can't help it happen sometimes. I get really excited when I see all these genders interacting with each other. I was like, why? I can't really relate to that problem. Um, wow, that's, that's a level of human connection that I wasn't here for. Um, but then we just, you know, have a little bit of a conversation. I leave to go to the bathroom later, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm over this. Like, it's time to leave. I'm thinking about going, and then I see my ex. She says, can we talk? And I think, no, I don't want to talk. But I say, yeah, okay. And we hold hands and we walk through the black particle board painted maze with the dick holes in it. Walking through the dick holes, we get to this bathtub. We sit down on this crusty bathtub and we're having a conversation. I'm like, how's your night going? She's like, 
yeah, it was kind of weird. This gay man hit on me. I was like, oh. She's like, he's very handsome. I was like, oh. Wait, was his name Steve? She said, yes. And then we both were like, I was like, what the fuck, Steve? Steve betrayed me. I thought he was my friend. He's hitting on my ex. So we laugh about Steve a little bit. And then we kind of look around and we're like, where even are we? How did we get here? It's like cut this tension now because of Steve. And she goes, I'm sorry about before. I was like, yeah, me too. She goes, I, I think I was just hurt because it seems like you're okay. And that's hard to watch. I thought, yeah, I am okay. I just kind of sat there for a little while. Her head was like rested on mine. We were sitting on the bathtub. And I was like, do you want to see my nipples? <laughs> She's like, yeah. So I showed her my nipples. And I was thinking, you know, at first I thought I was going to be really mortified to see her. But actually, I was really happy she was there to witness. But then I looked down at my Fitbit. And it was... 1 a.m., and I was like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. I've just hit my last goal. Uh, I call a lift. (laughs) I get into the car. I'm riding home, and I'm like, wow, I just, I hit all of my goals, including the reach goal. And I saw my ex, and that should have been this horrible experience, but actually, like, I survived, and it was totally fine. And if I can do that, I can kind of do anything, you know? Yeah. I go back to my apartment. I'm laying in my bed. I'm alone now again, but I'm no longer judging myself. I drink my other bottle of Gatorade. (laughs) And I eat the other half of my burrito. Thank you. Oh Lord, give me strength, sweet Lord, give me love. Oh Lord, oh Lord, give me strength, give me strength, sweet Lord, sweet Lord, give me love. is all for this week's episode folks this is boy george behind me now and we just heard from ollie gillette now the party that ollie is talking about in that story is the legendary inferno queer party that is hosted by my friend adam Barron. 
Adam does such a remarkable job of bringing people together in the most positive, sexy way. Uh, I we gotta get him on the show at some point. But if you want to learn more about the Inferno Party, go to Instagram. It's at NYC Inferno Party. Stop on by. Maybe I'll lick your butt. <laughs> you never know. And if you want to know where Risk is appearing live next, information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. London hasn't seen a performance like this since Sybil Thorndike appeared in St. Joan. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer! And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.